as he continues our series, Jesus, the Caring Friend. All right. Thank you, Corey. <laughs> it's good to be together in worship tonight, isn't it? Praise God on this exciting Palm Sunday weekend. This is a, a special weekend on the Christian calendar. It's the first part of Holy Week, and I'm thrilled to be able to be here and to share some things with you tonight. And as you know, we're going through the, a, a series on the Gospel of Luke. And Pastor Rex has left off last week at the end of chapter 7. This week, we're at the beginning of chapter 8. And this passage that we're reading about this week is not the Palm Sunday passage. It's not the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. But the cool part about the way these passages line up is this passage really, I think, has a uh, this, a similar theme. Today we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 8. It's the, called the parable of the sower, and it's all about evangelism. It's all about telling the truth about who Jesus is, which is exactly what those folks were doing as Jesus came into Jerusalem that day. They were saying, Hosanna to the, son, the king of uh, kings, the son of David, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's really what evangelism is. It's telling the truth about who Jesus is. And today we're going to get into that, but before we do, I'm going to open in prayer. So let's pray together, shall we? Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit that, um, that guides us into the truth. Lord, for the truth that we see in your word, the truth that we'll look at in the Gospel of Luke today and in other passages. Father, I pray that you would just help this truth to take root in our hearts. Lord, help it to grow and bear fruit in our hearts today. And we open our hearts to you, Lord. We open our hearts to your Holy Spirit. We thank you. We bless you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Now, today, the, the story that we're going to read about is in Luke chapter 8, and it's verses 4 through 15. But I don't want to skip right over verses 1 through 3. They're not part, about, uh, not part of the theme or the story or the message for today. But I want to just take a quick moment to mention these verses, because these verses are very unique. And I've probably read them a million times before, but as I read to prepare for this message, something was pretty peculiar to me. You'll see in these verses that it talks about Jesus' followers and how they traveled around with him and how they listened to him. And you know what? In this passage, it, if you ever needed a passage to, to tell you how much of a status quo breaker Jesus was and how much of a new culture maker Jesus was, this, these three verses will do it. Because back then, there was, you know, from what I understand, no rabbis really had any female students or female disciples or pupils. But this passage says that Jesus had not just the, the 12 disciples who traveled with him and followed with him, but there was a group of women who did the same, a, a large group. It says many women who did the same, and it calls out several of them by name. And it says that they actually supported Jesus' ministry financially so that he was able to do the things that he was able to do. Talk about breaking gender barriers and breaking gender constructs from the very beginning. Jesus was doing that from the very beginning. So today, as we begin to read our passage for the, the sermon today, I thought it was only appropriate to invite Corey back up to read the scripture for today. She's going to do that in the Passion Translation, and I asked her to do that in the Passion Translation because sometimes when a story is familiar to us, it helps to hear that story in unfamiliar language. So Corey, why don't you go ahead and do that? Thanks, Jeff. Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 15. Massive crowds gathered from many towns to hear Jesus, and he taught them using metaphors and parables, such as this. A farmer went out to sow seeds for a harvest. As he scattered his seed, some of it fell on the hard pathway and was quickly trampled down and unable to grow, and it became nothing but bird seed. 
Some fell on the gravel, and though it sprouted, it couldn't take root. It withered for lack of moisture. Other seed fell where there was nothing but weeds. It, too, was unable to grow to full maturity, for it was choked out by the weeds. Yet some of the seed fell into good fertile soil, and it grew and flourished until it produced more than a hundredfold harvest, a bumper crop. Then Jesus added, shouting out to all who would hear, listen with your heart and you will understand. Later, his disciples came to Jesus and asked him privately what deeper meaning was found in, his, in this parable. He said, you have been given a teachable heart to perceive the secret hidden mysteries of God's kingdom realm. But to those who don't have a listening heart, my words are merely stories. Even though they have eyes, they're blind to the true meaning of what I say. And even though they listen, they won't receive full revelation. Here then is the deeper meaning to my parable. The word of God is the seed that is sown into hearts. The hard pathway represents the hard hearts of men who hear the word of God but the slanderer quickly snatches away what was sown in their hearts to keep them from believing and experiencing salvation. The seed falling on the gravel represents those who initially respond to the word with joy, but soon afterward, when a season of harassment of the enemy and difficulty come to them, they wither and fall away, for they have no root in the truth, and their faith is temporary." The seed that falls into the weeds represents the hearts of those who hear the word of God, but their growth is quickly choked off by their own anxious cares, the riches of this world, and the fleeting pleasures of this life. This is why they never become mature and fruitful. The seed that fell into good, fertile soil represents those lovers of truth who hear it deep within their hearts. They respond by clinging to the word, keeping it dear as they endure all things in faith. This is the seed that will one day bear much fruit in their lives. Excellent. Thank you so much, Corey. And if you were tracking with Corey as she was reading there, you can see that this passage is all about spreading the word of God and how that word is received, sharing the good news, the gospel. We have a, a churchy word for that. We call it evangelism. And I'm pretty fond of that word evangelism, actually, so fond of it that we named our youngest daughter Evangeline, which means good news bearer. I love that name. And you know what? I think I'm in pretty good company when I say that I'm fond of that word evangelism, because if you were here on Wednesday night, you probably heard Pastor Rex talk about his vision for the next five years for Grace Fellowship Church. And he said it's his desire and his vision to see our church witness and, and bring hundreds and hundreds of souls into the kingdom here in this capital region over the course of the next five years. And if you're like me, you're saying amen to that, but I know some of us probably were also cringing a little bit at that if that meant that we had to be the ones to actually talk to those people about Jesus and actually help them understand their need for a Savior because that's kind of uncomfortable, and really, when we get right down to it, evangelism can be kind of an uncomfortable topic in church, ironically. Because, well, there's, uh, for a lot of reasons. It can be uncomfortable because of generalizations, because people have strong opinions about exactly how and the right way to share the good news. And they think that it, some people think there can only be one way to do it. Some people think you got to go by a system and things like that. And it creates some tension and discomfort. We see dynamic preachers and evangelists, and we wonder, man, 
I could never do that. Why, why would I even try? I can't speak like him. I can't preach like that guy. I, why would I even try? Sometimes we're uncomfortable with the topic of evangelism because of the, the social stigma that we think we may have to endure if we speak up for Jesus Christ. We think we might look weird or sound judgmental or like we're condemning because of the message of the gospel. I've heard, uh, I've heard it preached and I've read books. I, I was reading a Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren this past week, and it talked, he talked about, you know, if you had the cure for, the, for cancer or for AIDS, wouldn't you want to shout that from the mountaintops? Wouldn't you want to shout that from the rooftops? And yeah, that's true, but I don't know about you, but in my experience, people, people who know they have a disease are ready to hear about a cure. They really want to hear about a cure. But in my experience, the first conversation generally isn't telling people that I have a cure for their heart's disease, for their heart's deepest longing. The first conversation or an earlier conversation than that is to help people understand that they have a disease in the first place, the disease of sin that's kept them out of relationship with God. And that conversation isn't a comfortable one. It's an intimate topic. It's one that is, is sometimes difficult and awkward to broach with people. And then finally, another reason I think that, that the topic of evangelism can be an uncomfortable one in church is because of sometimes just bluntly our, our lack of experience or our insecurity in feeling like we're able to share that good news, feeling like we're able to appropriately convey the hope and the truth and the love and the life of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And certainly we've experienced those things for ourselves, but some of us may not be completely confident in our communication skills or feel like maybe there's a process that we're supposed to have engaged in that we didn't get right or a training that we should have taken that we shouldn't have taken or that we should have taken that we didn't. And sometimes we just feel insecure about our own ability to, to convey the good news. So what happens when we combine all of those factors? A lot of times we just freeze and sometimes we feel guilty and defeated about that because we don't know what else to do. But if you're like me, there's, there's still that small, soft voice inside, which is probably the Holy Spirit, reminding me that Jesus told his followers to go into all the world and make disciples. And it's in big, huge letters on that big banner we've got in the library, go, or in the lobby. Go into the world and make all disciples. In, into all the world and make disciples. And he wasn't just talking to the Billy Grahams or the Rex Keeners of the world when he said that to his followers. He was talking to each of us. The command was to each of his followers. The question then is, what are we doing with that command personally? Corporately, as a church, there's so much that we do to share the love of Christ. But personally, each one of us individually, what are we doing with that command of Christ? I'm not talking about putting money in the plate and having the professionals do it, the staff and the pastors and stuff like that. What are you and I doing personally to share the good news with the people that God has put in our lives? And that can be a very uncomfortable question. So we live with this tension. Or even worse, we live in guilt or self-condemnation. And deep in our hearts, we know that this can't be how God intended it to work because he doesn't deal in guilt or self-condemnation. But we can't see much else. We can't figure out a way out of this. Am I the only one that feels that way or is that something that you guys can identify with? Give me a nod if you can. Yeah, I see a few. I lived with that tension for a long time, and, and sometimes I still do, but God's really showed me some things over the course of the last few years and then more over the last few months that have just radically changed the way that I think about personal evangelism and radically changed the way that I actually do personal evangelism. 
And I'm super excited to be able to share some of that with you guys tonight. I'm going to tell you some stories. We're going to open some Bible passages. And together, we're going to see if we can understand God's heart when it comes to this topic. And before we do that today, there are two questions that I want to try to answer. I want to try to answer why share the gospel in a personal way. And two, how do we share the gospel in a personal way? So we're going to break it down into two sections, the why and the how. But before we do that, I want to tell you a story. Back in 1917, in Elmira, New York, not too far from here, a young man named Anthony and a young woman named Louise welcomed their second son into the world. They called him Louis after his mom. They had a, had a boy named Pete before that. And after Louis was born, the family, their first generation Italian immigrants, they moved out west. They moved to California, and they made a home for themselves out there. They had two more girls out there, uh, Sylvia and Virginia. And they were, a, they were a close family. They were a tight-knit family. And Louis, who was the one born right in Elmira here, when, when they moved out there, Louis, Louis was kind of a scrapper growing up, and he made a name for himself as kind of a rascal. He would get into trouble sometimes. And the way that he found himself getting out of trouble, the way he channeled his energy instead of getting into mischief was he began to run track. And Louis was a fantastic track athlete, so good that he competed, he broke records in high school, he competed in college at the University of Southern California, and he even went on to uh, qualify for the 1936 U.S. Olympics in Berlin, and he ran there in Berlin. And by the time he was 24, World War II had begun, and Louis had enlisted in the military for World War II. He was stationed out in the Pacific. He was part of a, a team that did bombing runs in the Pacific. And one day, he, well, he had done that for about two years. And one day after about two years of those bombing runs, which were pretty high casualty missions given the type of equipment they had to use and the planes that they had to use, one day his plane had, was experiencing mechanical difficulties and the plane actually wound up crashing in the Pacific Ocean. There were 11 crew members aboard that day. Eight of them died immediately in the crash. Three survived. One of them was Louie. And by this time, you may begin to recognize pieces of this story. This man's name is Louis Zamperini, and he was the, the subject of a book and a movie a few years ago called Unbroken. And I, I haven't seen the movie, but I've read the book. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this story because I believe it has a, a strong tie to what we're going to talk about as far as the why of evangelism. But when Louis' plane crashed, the military did their, their standard search. And they actually, they searched for seven days for Louis, but they couldn't find him. And when that search was fruitless, they wrote a telegram back home to Louis' family. And I'm going to read a portion of the chapter 21 of the book to you right now. It says, in Torrance, Torrance, California, the June 4th, 1943 telegram announcing Louis' disappearance was followed by excruciating silence. Many weeks passed, and the military search yielded no trace of Louis, his crew, or the plane. In town, hope dissolved. When the Zamperinis went out, they saw resignation on their neighbors' faces. Inside the White House on Gramercy Avenue, which was Willie's home, or Louis's home, the mood was different. In the first days after the telegram arrived, Louise Zamperini, his mother, had been seized with the conviction that her son was alive. Her husband and children had felt the same. Days passed, then weeks. Spring became summer and no word came. But the family's conviction remained unshaken. To the family, Louis was 
among them still, spoken of in the present tense, as if he were just down the street, expected at any moment. What the Zamperinis were experiencing wasn't denial and it wasn't hope, it was belief. Louise, Anthony, Pete, and Virginia still sensed Louis's presence and they could still feel him. Their distress came not from grief, but from the certainty that Louis was out there in trouble and they couldn't reach him. On July 13th, Louise felt, a, Louise felt a wave of urgency. She penned a letter to Major General Willis Hale, commander of the 7th Air Force, and in it she begged Hale not to give up searching. Louis, she wrote, was alive. Unbeknownst to Louise, on that same day, Louis was captured. Several weeks later, a reply came from Hale's office. The letter said that given the failure of the search to yield any clues, the military had been forced to accept that Louis and the rest of the men on the plane were gone. It was hoped, the letter said, that Louise would accept this also. Louise ripped up the letter. And meanwhile, on the other side of the world, after surviving 47 days lost at sea, Louis was being tortured and abused in an enemy POW camp. And the bulk of the book and the bulk of, and pieces from what I understand of the movie are a lot about what Louis suffered in the POW camps over there and just how much he was tested about the suffering of the other men, some many, many of whom never made it home. The conditions and the treatment there was unspeakable. 17 months after Louis was declared missing in action, the family finally received news that he could be alive. And then finally it was confirmed. And then the war ended a few months after that, but it was another 11 months before Louis came home. He was finally rescued and sent home. His older brother, Pete, flew to San Francisco to greet him. After the doctors were satisfied with Louis's health, the two men came home to Los Angeles. And on a rainy day in October, Louis and his brother landed at the local airstrip. And there at the airstrip, there was a bunch of cars. And when that plane landed and the door opened... The doors to the cars opened at the same time, and Louis's family came flooding from those cars, and Louis came bounding out of the plane, and he greeted his mother, and he wrapped her up in his arms, and he just kind of crumpled right there in her arms, and he said, cara mamma mia, which means my dear mother. And can you imagine what Louis felt to finally be home, to be in his mom's arms, what, that, what Louise felt to have her son finally home after being gone for so long and being not able to, to draw him close, to have him in her arms again. Can you imagine that feeling? It's quite a story, and it has, it has echoes of the prodigal son, that same pain of separation, the belief in a complete reunion, and ultimately the satisfaction of being reconciled to one another again. And that's why I believe this story connects so closely to our motivation for evangelism, our why. It's that moment of coming home, of reconciliation and restoration. And that word reconciliation has a special meaning for me because at the end of 2017, I, I prayed uh, at the end of the year that God would give me a concept or a theme or an idea to kind of work through in my walk with him and my journey with him this year. And it wasn't long before God gave me that very word, reconciliation. It means to be restored to good favor or relationship. And when he gave me that, that theme of reconciliation, I began to look through the Bible like crazy and see, every, try to learn from Scripture everything I could learn about reconciliation. I looked up 
every place that the word was used. I looked up stories of reconciliation like Joseph with his brothers in the Old Testament or Jacob and Esau. And I began to look over different passages that talked about reconciliation. And today, I want to share one of my favorite passages with you. And it's uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this became a new, my new motivation for personal evangelism, my new why. And it's been uh, powerful for me, and my prayer is that it'll be powerful for you too. And again, I've asked uh, someone special to come and read. This is uh, one of our GF Youth High School students. His name is David, and he's going to come and read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21 for us. Now, if anyone is enfolded into Christ, he has become an entirely new creation. All that is related to the older has vanished. Behold, everything is fresh and new, and God has made all things new and reconciled us to himself, and to given us the ministry of reconciling others to God. In other words, it, is, it was though the anointed one that God was entrusted us to ministry of opening the door of recon, reconciliation of, to God. We are ambassadors of the anointed one who carried the message of Christ to the world as though God were tender, tenderly pleading with them directly through our lips. So we, are tenderly, so we tenderly plead with you on Christ's behalf. Turn back to God and be recon, re, reconciled to him. For God made the only, uh, the only one who, no, who did not know sin to become sin for us, so that who did not know righteousness might become, righteous, might become the righteousness of God through our union with him. Very good. Thank you so much, David. What a great passage that is. Did you check, did you see the, the emotional intensity and the intimacy of that passage of Scripture? Of where it said, we tenderly plead with you on Christ's behalf, turn back to God and be reconciled to him. It said as though God were tenderly pleading with them directly through our lips, be reconciled to God. And as I've studied and meditated on this passage over the last few months, there are are many amazing truths that have surfaced from this passage and from my study in reconciliation. But the first idea that I want to kind of bring out to you today is that God was shepherding the world, it says there. And most versions uh, say God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The world, that means everybody. And we, I guess we know that because John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. But do we really know that? Do we really know that? That every person on earth, God has his heart set on being reconciled to every single person on earth. This includes people who don't look or act like us. This includes the people who are annoying, the people who are mean, the people who are evil. God's heart is set on reconciliation. It includes Muslims, Buddhists, Baptists, Catholics, gay, straight, trans, rich, poor, happy, sad, Black, white, Asian, Latino, Native American, Eskimo, liberals, conservatives, people in urban areas, people in the suburbs, people who live on farms, singles, married, swingers, politicians, movie stars, people who are on magazine covers, people who are on the front page of newspapers. These are people. They're people made in the image of God, homeless, homemakers, they're people made in God's image, and he has a heart that wants to see them reconciled to him. Every single one of them is of value to him. No less value than we are, no more value than we are. 
And the passage says he's not keeping record of our transgressions. He doesn't see us for our lostness and for our brokenness. He sees these people and he sees us as his child, his creation. We are created in his image. Just like Louis's mom, his child far from him, imprisoned by the enemy. And just like Louis's mom, he's not giving up. I like the way William Paul Young puts it. He says, the father is especially fond of you. And for some reason, that's easier for us to believe about people who are like us. But really, it includes everyone. It includes the people at work, the person at work who just lives to make your life a living hell. It includes the, the toll booth worker that nobody looks at. It includes the cashier. It includes your server at the restaurant. It includes the person in your uh, kid's, parent in your kid's school that is passive aggressive all the time. I think we, some of us parents know what that's like. And just like I said, when we, when we look at this, for some reason it's easier to, to think that, this, that God loves people who are like us. But that's just because we have our own value system that needs to be replaced. Just like David read, now if anyone, the first part that he read there is if anyone is enfolded into Christ, he's become an entirely new person. All that is related to the old order has vanished. Behold, everything is new. And when we exchange our way of looking at people and valuing people for God's way, when we make that exchange, he gives us a whole new way to value people. The actual, their actual value never changes. But the way we see that value and understand that value changes. So what does it look like on Monday? What does it look like tomorrow? Try to look at people tomorrow with God goggles on, knowing each person is made in his image. Each is precious to him like a son or daughter. Chances are most of the people that you come in contact with on a daily basis are far from God and need to be reconciled to him. They've been imprisoned by the enemy, but his heart is determined to bring them home. And we are his ambassadors of reconciliation, the POW rescuers. That, as that verse said, he's tenderly pleading with them as if through our lips, turn back to God and be reconciled to him. Let that lens, let that lens change the way you see people tomorrow, the way you see that argumentative coworker, the way you see that invisible cashier. Let that change the way you see that argumentative neighbor or parent. For me, it sounds like the Holy Spirit saying, Jeff, that's my son. He's so lost and he's so hurting right now. Will you love him for me? And that's not just a sentimental lever to get us to move. That's the actual father's heart of God. The question is, what will you do with that? And that's what brings us to the how. How? That's the real question, isn't it? Because I think... You know, we could probably come up with a lot of good reasons to be motivated to share the good news, to, to evangelize the world, but the, the how is where we get tangled up. I'm sure many of us have heard talks or sermons or read books or done Bible studies about how to be evangelistic, how to share the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm not asking you to throw any of that away, but I'm asking you just for now, just to wipe that, wipe that board clean for a minute. And I want you to consider these two simple ideas. I was reading a, a book a little while ago called Just Walk Across the Room, and it's by Bill Hybels, who's the visionary pastor of one of the most successful churches in the United States over the course of the last 25 or 30 years, Willow Creek Community Church. 
And this book is all about personal evangelism. And I didn't read the whole book, but I, as far as I've gotten, there's this one quote that stands out to me above everything I've read so far in the book. And he says this, I'm more convinced than ever that the absolute highest value in personal evangelism is staying attuned to and cooperative with the Holy Spirit. Now, Bill calls that one value, but I'm going to break that down into two things, staying attuned to and cooperative with the Holy Spirit. Listening to the Holy Spirit and cooperating with the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about listening to the Holy Spirit for a minute. When we slow down, when we slow our hearts and our minds and our bodies down to listen, actually listen to the Holy Spirit sometimes, incredibly important things happen. He opens our eyes to gospel opportunities that are custom made for us, divine appointments. And when it comes to personal evangelism, one size definitely doesn't fit all because God puts us in these divine appointments. He doesn't put other people in those divine appointments. He puts us in those divine appointments. Most of us can't preach or share the gospel the way that Pastor Rex does, and that's okay. He's a very gifted gospel communicator, one of the most gifted I've ever come across. But not everyone is gifted like that, and not everyone has the grace or the passion to do that well. But it sure does work for him. And I like to call that his gospel groove. That's the term that I use for it. When you find that way, when you cooperate and listen to the Holy Spirit, when you find that way of sharing the gospel that just fits you like a glove. And the cool part is when you tune into the Holy Spirit and you ask him to show you his way for you, He'll come through on that, guaranteed. My mom is not a preacher. She is not a pastor. She is just an Italian grandma. <laughs> and she, she prayed one day, though. She had a burden on her heart, just as an example of what I'm talking about. She prayed one day for, she was praying for moms who had lost babies to miscarriages and who had babies who were stillborn and died shortly after birth. And she was praying for those moms, and she just had this, burden on her heart to do something for them. And as she was still and listened to the Holy Spirit, he gave her an idea. And she got together a bunch of ladies from her church, and she asked them to, to join in on this idea with her. And what they did was they made blankets, and they wrote personal letters of comfort, and they put a uh, portion of scripture in there with a gospel message in it, and they made a package out of these items and they brought these to local hospitals here in the capital region. And my mom went in with a large basket full of these packages, and she went to the maternity ward, and she asked, hey, when you have a, a mom here who's experienced a, a death of a child, would you be willing to give these things to them? The ladies in our church made this out of love for those moms, even though we don't know them. We want to share the love of Christ with them. Would you be willing to give these to them? And at every hospital she's gone to, praise God, the administrators have said yes. And so these moms who come in with some of them full of hope and expectancy and leave brokenhearted, don't leave without knowing that God sees them and loves them and cares for them. And they don't leave without a message of hope. And that's my mom's gospel groove. That's the way that the, that the Holy Spirit has inspired her and the way that she's cooperated with the Holy Spirit to share the gospel. Because we all have that message and that ministry of reconciliation. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you with gentleness and respect. That directive wasn't just meant for pastors and evangelists. 
It was meant for all of us. So my question is, what's your gospel groove? We've probably seen people preach on street corners and pass out gospel pamphlets and go door knocking and things like that. And maybe some of those things seem outmoded to us, but a lot of times they still work. But you know what? The Holy Spirit isn't limited to that. And he's not stumped after we get past those three ways of communicating the gospel and stumped in how to spread the good news. What has the Holy Spirit inspired you to do? What's your thing, your gospel groove? You could buy lunch for a person in, uh, the person in line behind you at Chipotle. And when they comment or when they thank you, you can tell them, Jesus gave me this love and I just need to pass it on. You could write a poem or a song or create a piece of art that, that glorifies Jesus Christ and give that to somebody as a way to share who Jesus is. Next time you're out to dinner, try tipping your server an extra $10 or $20 and right across the top of the check, Jesus loves you. Send a blessing or a prayer and a text message to someone who you care about, who you know is far from God. Write a Bible verse about salvation in a birthday card. Volunteer your time with people who you know can't pay you back, and when they ask you why, tell them that Jesus paid a debt that you could never pay back, and this is your way of thanking him by serving the people that he loves. I stop strangers and pray for them on the street. I ask them if they want prayer, and then I pray for them. That's my thing. That's my gospel groove. But it all comes back to just what Bill Heibel said, staying tuned into the Holy Spirit. And that's so important. Because when we see people the way that God sees them, and when we open our schedule to his divine appointments, amazing things happen. Now let's just talk quickly about cooperating with the Holy Spirit. And I believe it's important that we change the measurement that we have for personal evangelism. If, if you're like me, many of us were taught that when you, when you give someone the gospel or when you share the gospel with them, you must seal the deal. You must close the deal. You must have that person pray that prayer. and You must get to that point of conversion or else that whole thing was a waste or else it was a failure. And I don't believe that's true. Sometimes we're just simply breaking up the ground. To go back to our original metaphor from the passage that Corey read. Sometimes we're just breaking up ground. Sometimes we're actually planting seeds of truth in people's life. Sometimes we're watering. Sometimes we're, we're giving uh, strength to a seed of truth that's already been planted. Sometimes we're weeding. And sometimes, sometimes we actually get to pick that fruit and we actually get to see someone walk from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Praise God. And in that book, Bill Hybels uh, talks about how Sometimes we're just, how, how rare it is to see someone move in a single conversation from a zero to a 10 in their relationship with God. But often, often we may be able to help someone move from a, a zero to a three or from a three to a five or from a five to a six. And it's all part of God's plan. He's trustworthy. Our measurement for success can't strictly be conversion. Even the great apostle Paul said, I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. We can't control what someone does with the message of the gospel. But we can control whether we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Our measurement for success has to be cooperation. Did we do the thing that the Holy Spirit prompted us to do? As bizarre or uncomfortable or as awkward as it may have seemed, if we cooperated with the Holy Spirit, that is a true success. And when I approach strangers to pray with them, uh, probably one in five refuses. But you know what? I don't see those refusals 
as failures because when I offer to pray with them, I'm already succeeding because I've been cooperating with the Holy Spirit. I can't control how they respond to that offer, whether they take me up on it or not, but I can control whether I cooperate or not. And before we finish, I want to tell you uh, one story about uh, something that I witnessed that was just this beautiful blend of listening to the Holy Spirit and cooperating with the Holy Spirit. And a group of friends and I, we get together a lot and we pray on Thursday evenings and we have a little prayer meeting that we do. And sometimes we'll meet at someone's house, sometimes we'll meet in downtown Albany, uh, somewhere downtown, sometimes it's by the Capitol. Some, this one particular night over the summer, it was in the plaza. And we were just having a great night of prayer. It was a beautiful, beautiful evening. We were just praying in the open air there. And as we were praying, we also started to sing. And so we were singing and just praising God and giving him glory in the open air there in the Empire State Plaza. And it started to get dark. It was a little bit later in the evening. In the summertime, it was probably 9, 9.30. And as we were singing, you know, some people would come by and they would just like smile at us. And uh, one young man came walking through the plaza and he came by and he says, what are you guys doing? And we said, well, we're just, we're praying and we're singing and we're giving God glory tonight. And uh, my friend Cindy was there and she said, is there something that we can pray for you about tonight? And he said, oh, he said, you know, yeah. And you know what? When you ask somebody if you can pray with them, probably the most awkward point in time is right after you ask, can I pray with you about something? Because they just look at you and they don't know whether to say yes. They don't know what that's going to be. But this young man said, yeah. He said, you know, tomorrow is going to be one year since my brother was killed. He said, and I know that, I know, I've known for the last few weeks that this date's been coming on the calendar. He said, and I haven't dealt with this. And he said, and I'm confused about it, and I'm angry about it, and I'm sad about it. And he says, I just don't know what to do. He says, I've been ignoring it, and I've been pushing it down. He said, but I could really use a prayer for that tonight. And so the group of us, there was four or five of us there, we all came around him. I think his name was Carlos. We all came around him. We put our hands on his shoulders, and we prayed for him that night. And the cool part about praying with someone is praise. Praise is a natural part of prayer. And praise is just simply giving God glory for who he is. And so as the five of us gathered around him that night, and as we prayed for him, we gave God glory for, for his love for this young man. And knowing that this young man needed encouragement, knowing that this young man needed to feel the love of his heavenly father that night and for putting our paths in that place that they would cross at that same time. We gave God glory for that. And we prayed for grace and for peace and for truth and for this young man to seek God in this struggle and to know Jesus through this struggle. And when we finished, he was so appreciative. We were pretty much all kind of teary-eyed at that point, but he was so appreciative. And he said, you know, he says, I never walk through the plaza on my way home from work. He said, for some reason tonight, I just knew that I needed to do that. And he said, and this was why. And that's the kind of thing that God does when we stay tuned into the Holy Spirit and when we listen to him and when we cooperate with him. So make this week the week that you start to figure out your gospel groove or to get back into your gospel groove. Getting out of your comfort zone is always worth it, no matter what the outcome is. The band's going to come up in just a minute, and they're going to begin to play some music for us tonight. But as we close today, I want to go back to that story that we talked about in the very beginning, that passage that Corey read in the beginning. 
the story of the sower. And maybe you've been taught to see yourself as the sower or the farmer in that passage. You're the one that's spreading the seed of the word of God. And maybe you, um, sometimes it works out, just like in the, in the story that we read. Sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. And we've, we've seen that. The, really, the measurement can't be whether it takes in good soil or not. The, the measurement has to be our cooperation with the Holy Spirit. But I'd like to flip this script, this story around a little bit here tonight. And instead of thinking of ourselves as the sower, I want us to think of ourselves as the ground that the seed landed on. Are you good ground tonight? Or are you one of those first pieces of ground, the stony ground, the thorny ground, the ground where the birds ate the seed? Are you one of those types of soil tonight? We might be sitting here and thinking, well, I'm in church and I'm planning on putting some money in the basket, and I did read my Bible this week, I'd say I'm pretty good ground. But in reality, the measurement that Jesus gives in this passage about between good ground and not so good ground is that the good ground reproduced, that it bore fruit. Take a look at your life right now. When was the last time you opened your mouth to actually speak the truth about who Jesus was, to actually share the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, like they did on that first Palm Sunday more than 2,000 years ago. When did you last speak the gospel to a person? Have you ever? If not, or if it's been a long time, I think we have to ask that question. Am I really good soil, or am I the soil that kills the seed of the truth? But it's not too late. We can make a turn this week. We can exchange our lens of the way that we see people and the way that we interact with people for God's. We can make a decision to stay tuned into the Holy Spirit and to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. And today on the back of your bulletin, there's a prayer there at the bottom of the back of the bulletin. I'd like you to take that out. I'm going to ask you to do something with me today. I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer with me in faith. And as you look it over, there may be parts of it that you can pray, and there may be parts that you can't, honestly. But I'll ask you to pray as much as you can with me in faith. I'm going to pray it out loud. We'll pray it together. You can pray it out loud with me, or you can pray it from just in your heart. But let's pray this prayer together as we look to go out and be an impact for the gospel of Jesus Christ in the community. Because can you imagine if, if all of us prayed this prayer together and if all of us determined that we were gonna find our gospel groove this week and we were gonna share the good news every day this week, can you imagine the impact that that would have? Not just for the, those of us who are in this room right now, but for the nine o'clock service, then the 11 o'clock service, if all of us who call this church our home went out with the intention that we will share the good news every day this week, what kind of gospel impact would that have in the capital region? How much would God be glorified through that? Man, praise God for that. Let's, let's take that piece of paper out, and if you can, pray that along with me right now. Let's pray. Good Father, thank you for trusting me with the ministry of reconciling others to you. Please give me eyes to see and ears to hear. Help me to see people the way you see them. God, 
I submit my calendar and schedule to your divine appointments. Please open my eyes to at least one opportunity each day this week to share your good news with someone who is far from you. Father, I am asking for this with confidence because I know reconciliation is the desire of your great heart. I'm asking for this so that you will be glorified. I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. And Lord, as we close tonight, Father, you've heard the prayers of your sons and daughters. You've heard our hearts. Father, you see where we're reluctant. You see where, we, where we're raring to go. Lord, I thank you that you are faithful and that you will make a way. And so, Father, I pray as we leave here tonight, even tonight when, before we go home, you may present us with an opportunity. Father, I pray that you'd give us the courage and the boldness to step into that. Lord, for your glory and that we would count as a success because we've cooperated with your Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that that would be the case for every day this week. Father, I pray a blessing on everyone who's prayed that prayer tonight with a heart of sincerity, that Lord, that you would bless them this week, that you would show them how faithful you are. And Lord, I thank you for those who will take steps closer to reconciling with you because of the people in this room tonight, because of each one of us who's determined to be that ambassador of reconciliation. Father, we give you glory. We thank you. We thank you that you've reconciled us to you and for the relationship we have with you. We give you glory, honor, and praise. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jeff. And I would